Hi, I'm Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 1 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. As always, I would direct you to the show notes where you will find a comprehensive running order of what we covered and when in this episode. I will, however, give you the usual brief overview. In Germany, we discussed what we can expect tactically and more generally from Bayern Munich this season following the departure of Robert Lewandowski. In Spain, we unpacked Valencia's current direction of travel, asking ourselves whether the club might be at risk of suffering the same fate as Deportivo La Coruña, who are of course now playing in the third tier of Spanish football. Elsewhere in Italy, we put Juve's summer recruitment under the road to nowhere microscope, while in France we considered the wider significance of the arrivals of Christophe Galtier and Louis Campos at Paris Saint-Germain. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual detailed way. This was of course our season 4 opener, so to mark the occasion, we were joined by a couple of special and highly knowledgeable guests. We were joined by Patrick Caskey, who is a football tactics expert with quite the profile on Twitter. And we were joined by Byron Hutchison, who is a recruitment analyst at Norwegian club Viking and the social media lead at the Bundesliga. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops, If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. We find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit FreelanceFootballOps.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. Enjoy. Feels like we've never really been away. It does just feel like last week we were recording the final episode of season three, and yet here we are again. I would say the wait is finally over, but it doesn't feel like there's been much of a wait at all. Uh, Rudy Barlow was particularly eager to record this episode tonight. He was rather punctual compared to his his usual ways. He was here on time. So Rudy Barlow, thank you for, for making that extra effort to come in on time. And yeah, I really welcome your enthusiasm. How are you doing, Barlow? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. It's been a good break. It's been nice uh, to sort of detox a little bit from the incessant football, but uh, now that it's gone, obviously, I'm looking forward to having it back. So yeah, I'm happy to be back, Ali. I hope you've you've had a good summer yourself. Yeah, I have indeed. I've, I've moved into my new flat. I became a homeowner for the first time, so still uh, getting used to the new area, exploring the local area. But yeah, it's been a really enjoyable summer and of course um, a break of sorts from the football which was nice but yeah glad that it's back I was at Rugby Park on Saturday to see Kilmarnock against Dundee United then I was at Anfield actually on Sunday to see Strasbourg beat Liverpool's B or maybe even C team 3-0 
in a pre-season friendly. So it's good to have it back. Michael Jones, I don't know if you'll be looking forward or not to seeing Wolves this season, but more generally, you'll be looking forward to, to this season, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not sure myself if I'm looking forward to Wolves this season yet. So that's yet to be seen. But yeah, our fourth season doing this together, which I believe takes us even with Pep Guardiola and his seasons at Barcelona. Well, once it's completed, but yeah, I'm I'm excited. I, my only issue with these episodes is a little bit at the beginning, um, because I think Serie A is normally the last one to restart. But I can't wait either way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Hopefully, we don't all lose our hair out of uh, stress and tiredness as Pep Guardiola did at the end of his time at Barca. I was just going to say that. I was just going. To say, Michael's scratching his head as if he's getting there already. Oh, anyway, we are also joined for this season opener by the excellent Patrick Caskey. Now, if you follow anybody on Football Twitter, if you're following Football Twitter generally, you will no doubt have come across Patrick's excellent work. Patrick is a hugely popular football tactics writer focusing on Rangers, but taking an interest more generally in European football as well. Patrick, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. If the summer's anything, it's filled with lots of attention to the transfer market, and I guess I represent an in- incoming to the team, maybe on a permanent, maybe on a temporary basis, but I'm excited to show off and uh, have to do some with you guys. Yeah, absolutely, Patrick. It was, it's great to have you on, and we've enjoyed your work from afar, so to have you on the podcast is, is a real privilege. Okay, what we're going to do firstly is we're going to turn our attention to Spain. Rudy Barlow is primed and ready we're going to approach this episode in a sort of virtual roundtable basis. So it's going to be a flowing discussion on four topics from across the four leagues we predominantly cover. We're going to go, as I was just saying, firstly to Spain with Rudy Barlow giving us his opinion on a club in trouble of sorts. Valencia are one of the most confusing and concerning clubs in Europe In 2014, Peter Lim, associate and business partner of Gary Neville and David Beckham, took over as majority shareholder of the club. Valencia were experiencing serious financial issues at the time, and Lim was supposed to be heralded as a saviour. But eight years down the line, their new stadium remains half-built, and increasingly the team is light on quality, slipping into the middle reaches of La Liga. It's easy to forget at the turn of the century, Valencia made two consecutive Champions League finals and won the league under Rafa Benitez shortly after. It was around that same time that Deportivo La Coruña, who spent the last three seasons in Spain's third tier, let's not forget, were going head-to-head with Valencia for the title. Having seen Depor's fall from grace, I guess the question is, are Valencia on course for a similar path, Barlow? I'd like to think not. I mean, I think... Most people, especially given that they've become sort of relatively harmless in the European football scene, they're not really challenging anyone or, or upsetting anyone too much at the minute. I think most people have sort of a, an affection or they look sort of uh, with, with a bit of melancholy, melancholy at Valencia because they were such a factor in European football. And this yeah team that was in Champions League finals and they've become sort of a a blank shell of themselves and it's really depressing to see I think the most iconic image of last season and the image that would really sum Valencia up well if you want to put it to two there was the Copa del Rey semi-final against uh, against Athletic Club where 
the team actually had some success and the entire street outside Mastaya was full of people and it, it was a really remarkable image. It was sort of players on the balcony conducting the fans as, as is sort of the, the general trends now. And, and that was remarkable to see. And then on the last sort of home game of the season, there was nobody at Mastaya because everyone was outside protesting against Peter Lim and his ownership. And just to, yeah, sort of provide some context to this, Peter Lim came in and initially did like a reasonably good job. I mean, he brought uh, Nuno in, formerly of Wolves, of course, and he, he sort of managed to get the team sort of going in the right direction. Jorge Mendes had a big role to play and still does at the club, but they'd made some smart additions and they'd got themselves sort of back into the Champions League. In particular, Marcelino, who came in a, a few seasons back, he got them to Copa del Rey success. He won them the cup. They were back in the Champions League. But from there, everything just sort of took a downward turn. It really, it seemed as if they were taking the part of club and taking sort of almost asset stripping at one point. Matteo Aleman, who's now at Barcelona and doing some good work as a sporting director there, he was a big part of their success. Marcelino, another big part of their success. He's been linked to the Spain job, which kind of shows you just how good he was in charge. But there was players like Rodrigo Moreno, who, yeah, okay, maybe he's not the highest rated at Leeds United these days, but there was a stage where he was linked for 60, 70 million to Barcelona, Real Madrid and Atleti. He was, he was a big name and there's just a sort of hemorrhaging of talent across, across those recent years. Valencia are really, really in dire straits and Barcelona have the lowest sort of salary, um, salary limit, so to speak, in La Liga nowadays. But Valencia were the next lowest, uh, lower than teams like Hatafe, uh, lower than teams like Levante, who are across town ra- rivals, who essentially, I mean, teams that have been kicking around the first division, but they're minim- minnows in comparison to Valencia, who, who are one of Spain's sort of traditional superpowers, it has to be said. And so, yeah, do I think they're going to go down the Deportivo route? Probably not, because I think they still have enough to attract players that at this point at least I mean I think Artur Melo is the latest kind of player that's been linked with them if uh, Gennaro Gattuso can get him in but that remains to be seen on their finances of course and it shows you that they can still attract players but season after season they've just been losing so their best players on the cheap essentially and there's only so much time longer before Gonzalo Guedes goes I think uh, Jose Gaia, Carlos Soler they might stick around a wee bit longer, but they'll be at the door before too long as well. And yeah, it's a depressing situation. Deportivo, in their case, they didn't have quite the same mass of support. They didn't have the tradition that Valencia had. I think they made it to the made it to the heights they did, and it was a remarkable achievement. But that sort of happened in the space of twenty years when they went from again sort of the third division to the Champions League, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And and it was remarkable as it happened. But Valencia is sort of slightly different case, and you always suspect that they maybe just have enough assets to to sell and, and to keep them in the first division. But there's there is a chance if no buyer comes in, if Peter Lim is content to try and make this profitable in inverted commas just by selling their assets, then they could very well end up going down. I don't think it will happen this season, but if things go terribly for them, and they haven't been going well, they've been sort of on a been treading water in the middle of the table for the last couple of seasons it's not within without the realms of possibility Michael I'm just quite keen Barley obviously touched on the Arena Gattuso 
now the manager, of course, at Valencia. Michael, I'm quite keen to hear your thoughts on how you think Gattuso would perhaps do in La Liga. He strikes me as quite a fiery, he strikes most people as quite a fiery personality and probably not really what Valencia need right now. It strikes me as if they need someone cool, calm and collected, perhaps. How do you see Gattuso faring at the Mestalla? Well, you know what? Weirdly, I think it's a really good fit. You know, we know about all of Valencia's problems that Barlow's just illustrated really well. But one of the things that you're going to get with Gattuso is sort of incredible loyalty. I mean, people may remember last summer um, when, not last summer, sorry, two summers ago when they signed Victor Simeon, how Gattuso was prepared and I believe did um, lose some of his wages towards that transfer. He's, I mean, that's the kind of thinking Peter Lim's got, bringing him into this job, thinking, oh, actually, I may not have to pay him as much and we may be able to bring in some bigger names. <laughs> well, I, I think that's probably unlikely, especially in the case of a Simeon, but maybe Artemelo is the exact case going forwards. But anyway, that's a bit of a tangent, but I, I do think in terms of characteristics, he's a good fit as well. And I think it's maybe, I don't know much about Bordelas. I didn't watch... Valencia much last season, but he was very, from what I gather from that and his time at Getafe, he was a very pragmatic manager. And Gattuso is similar in a sense, but he's quite versatile in terms of, he seems to have that knack of being able to manage a team, not to take them, you know, super beyond the capabilities or anything, but he certainly has the ability. I think he showed during his time with Napoli and AC Milan, both teams of which were in big transitional periods as well. You know, Napoli had come out of a really turbulent um, ending uh, of the time of Carlo Ancelotti. AC Milan had had sort of years of insecurity really after mm-hmm. their fall on grace about half a decade earlier. And I think he's just done... I think in both jobs, he really did set them up for the next manager in the likes of Spalletti and Stefano Pioli eventually, although he wasn't directly the next manager, to come in and take them up to the next level. And if that's the case, if that is how far he can go, Valencia, obviously in a different country, it's not his first time. He managed in Switzerland uh, right at the beginning of his career with Sion, which I think was a pretty disastrous stint from what I remember. But I I, I think there is... um, I'm quite encouraged by the manager. And the only other thing I'd like to add is... It's interesting to see who one of his first transfers was in Castillejo, who has been playing in for AC Milan. He signed, was signed under Gattuso for Milan and had his best season there, his most productive season in his first campaign. Um, but he's sort of flattered to deceive in Italy and maybe him returning to Spain could be a happy hunting ground also. Yeah, interesting. Now, Patrick, I'm going to bring you in now. You are quite the expert in, in finding players that are perfect for systems players that work quite well for different teams I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here but if you were asked to come in if you were tasked with coming in to Valencia and picking up the pieces and trying to improve the squad a little bit what sort of direction would you go in? Well thank you very much for the the compliment I think they have um, I just want to preface it saying that I didn't watch an awful lot of Valencia and I do think an image emblematic of their past few years was the uh, last game of the season just finished when they had when they're playing Celta Vigo and I believe they had more fans outside the stadium protesting the game than inside and had this wonderful aerial shot from a helicopter just showing the mass sprawl of people outside protesting against Peter Lim versus the really tepid atmosphere inside but I think like most clubs in the top five they do have a few players who um, fit really well I think uh, Rui mentioned 
uh, solar. They also have much, uh, I think it's perhaps not fair to say failed potential as of so far, but Gonzalo Guedes, I think if we were to see five years ago and predict where he would be at, at the current moment, he would be beyond Valencia uh, and somewhere else. His move to PSG didn't fare all too well and sort of he sort of fell on expectations. But this is kind of a, perhaps a niche pick, but I love the pickup of Giorgio Mamardashvili last season from Dinamo Tbilisi. He came in for 800,000 euros and he's kind of cemented himself as the sort of number one for Valencia. And a fun bit of knowledge is the fact that his one of the teams he was on loan at last season in Georgia, Sabotalo Tbilisi, them and Valencia have now signed a partnership. So there's a Valencia Academy in Tbilisi now. So maybe they'll make good use of that. But I, I do think in terms of the system and what they're playing with now, uh, I think it's very simple. Uh, Occam's razor kind of stuff. Good teams need a good goal scorer. And I think for the most part, a lot of teams outside the elite per se lack that. Um, Valencia, to for this extent, have Maxi Gomez who is a capable goal scorer and probably at the echelon in which they operate now is fine because I think we need to differentiate what Valencia used to be and what they are now. But I do think someone getting someone who's perhaps more creative or just perhaps a better cutting edge than Gomez, but that's asking a lot because I think obviously consistently in the market, whether it's the sort of still COVID-depressed market we're in now or previous ones, is that strikers who score goals come at a premium. And as mentioned throughout Valencia, perhaps aren't, in the best financial state. But I do think there is an argument for sort of blowing it up and selling a lot of the players, um, but then that just is gonna be a constant wind of turmoil and ins and outs. So I do think that there might be some credence in the idea of sort of trying to stay, stay in the league for as long as possible and sort of slightly ebb and flow young and constructive players in, whether that be through the youth academy or, or going through the sort of routes they have done so far with Mamar Dashuri from Georgia, they got you know, Yunus Musa uh, and sort of sort of help that with the youth system. But I do think it's a really incredibly difficult situation that Valencia are in right now. And one that has someone far more capable than anyone on Twitter has to solve and they're getting paid lots of money to do so. Well, you never know, Patrick, if Peter Lim does pick up the phone to you, make sure that he doesn't offer you a very meagre wage because uh, if, uh, if we've learned anything from Peter Lim is that he does like to, to cut corners financially perhaps although maybe I'm being unfair Paul perhaps I'm being unfair you're not yeah okay. <laughs> absolutely <Okay. not. laughs> well that was extremely interesting guys thank you very much for that insight I think Valencia and I'm sure the listeners will agree with me here are arguably one of the most iconic clubs one of the most kind of uh, mysterious clubs as well to an extent given their quite recent history uh, they're a club who growing up almost like FC Baal in Switzerland uh, I remember watching on on telly on in the Champions League at a time when you were really supposed to be going to bed it was kind of that sort of age where you're early primary school so for me yeah they are quite an iconic club quite a mysterious club so it'll be interesting to see how they fare over the next few seasons I think it would be quite a shame to see them suffer the same fate as Deportivo La Coruña and it would be yeah Really nice to see them stabilise themselves and return to, if not the top table, then maybe the second table down of Spanish football. Okay, I think that represents a good moment for us to draw to a close our analysis of Spanish football and Valencia. We're going to take a really quick break. We'll be back in no time at all to look at France. We're going to look at PSG. There has been plenty of changes at the Parc de France this summer. So we are going to look at what those changes mean more widely for Paris Saint-Germain. We'll be right back.
Yeah, so moving into France and the winds of change have been blowing through the Parc de France this summer. A comprehensive review by Paris Saint-Germain's president, Nasser Al-Khalifi, has seen the club replace Maurizio Pochettino with Christophe Galtier. Upstairs, the divisive sporting director, Leonardo, has said his Parisian goodbyes for a third time, and the mysterious Louis Campos has been appointed in his place, assuming the title of football advisor. Of course, Campos and Galtier played key roles in crafting Lille's iconic league and title win two years ago. Ostensibly, this summer activity seems uncharacteristically problematic for French football's richest club. So, is what we are seeing at PSG merely a temporary deviation from their typically lavish approach to hoovering up trophies, or do the recent personnel changes represent a genuine shift towards a more permanent culture change? Um, I, I would be, I'm quite bullish on PSG. I think uh, 2022 has represent, represented a new era arriving in Paris, despite the comical reporting of Mbappe's contract talks and his ability to be an impromptu director of football. The summer business as so far has been quite smart. Um, around 12 months ago, I think Messi's arrival uh, at least should have hypothetically guaranteed a cakewalk towards both Ligue 1 and the latter stages of the Champions League as PSG or who they want to be known more as in our kind of um, directing himself as Paris, just dropping the Saint-Germain, put together a front three, Neymar, Mbappe and Messi, that only seemed plausible on FIFA or football manager, but was able to play for an entire season. Um, despite walking with relative ease to that league un title, um, the end of the season was not a celebration in Paris. Rather, um, the fitting image at the end of their season was their main ultras group taking aim at the stadium with weapons of choice being anything harmless they could really get their hands on. Um, but it appears at the turn of the new season, they're finally committing to utilising their world-class catchment area that is for football, Paris. Um, with this, they've also seen the arrival of Galtier, probably the best manager that's been in France in the last four years, or at least within the entire time period. Lots been made of Galtier's 4-4-2, how he's utilised uh, both Nice and Lille, and how it may not fit all of PSG's top assets. But I would also uh, retort with a question, what system in the world can fit all of, truly fit all of their top foreigners? with it being extremely top-heavy, both in the midfield and attack. And uh, when we look towards the sort of competition they have in Lego, and it seems to be another cakewalk on their hands, with Marseille on the brink of civil war, with rumours of the arrival of Ivan Chudar, butting heads with almost half the squad already there, with six or seven up on the transfer list. Leon again, not looking like the former shell, uh, looking a former shell of himself, similar to when predicament to Valencia, as we discussed earlier, and Monaco again selling their best talents uh, to foreign lands with Chumeni gone to Real Madrid, part of the pronunciation if it's wrong, and Benoit Badeschiel also looking like he could be out. But I do think the recruitment of one player specifically is symbolic of the sort of seismic change in PSG, and that it is, again, uh, pardon the uh, pronunciation, but Hugo Etike from Stade Rheem, it's a symbolic show that they've sort of moved away from the petrol-infused dollar and cents to rather harvesting what France has best. Etiquette is still relatively young and unproven, but that does come, the money The money in modern football, that potential sees is pretty much what drives up prices these days. Um, with the arrival of Vitinha, Mendes and Mukiele, it's a trio that provides dynamism and more important than anything, youth. 
this kind of shows a seismic shift in general towards PSG's transfer policy towards something more reminiscent of a Leipzig, a team who they could do for uh, very well copying. Uh, and on the opposite side, the three people leaving also represent uh, that same diametrical shift in the sense that Di Maria, Di Maria has left Juventus, another one of their top earning stars gone for another paycheck. Alphonse Areola has gone to West Ham, an example of them uh, cashing in on unused talent. And finally, um, perhaps the poster boy uh, before Neymar and Messi, uh, below Neymar and Messi of the PSG project was Javi Simmons after they managed to take him off Barcelona, offering the then, I think, 15 or 16-year-old an incredible pay packet. And he's finally left for PSV. I do think the transfer window as a whole represents a shift towards a more sustainable and Parisian PSG but it's still to see if this will re represent a successful change. Although I do think Galtier would have to do a massive shape around and mess up to stop PSG winning the league title. But as it always, the litmus test for success at PSG is the Champions League. Absolutely, Patrick. And it's what you say there, that Champions League is the be-all and end-all for the Qatari owners. So to answer Michael's question, personally, I would say, does it represent... Uh, a temporary deviation or does it represent a more genuine and permanent shift uh, I think that depends on whether or not it brings success if this new approach does bear fruit and by fruit I mean a Champions League title then yeah I think the owners will stick with this approach, they will buy into this kind of approach more long term but if we get to Christmas and PSG have been knocked out of the Champions League. I don't think that will happen, but who knows? <laughs> then something tells me that the, the Galtier and Campos experiment, shall we say, might be rather short-lived. The, the early signs, when we look at the Super Cup win against Nantes, are that Galtier is getting a tune out of Messi, a tune that Pochettino only ever really managed to get out of Messi on certain occasions in the Champions League last season, I thought Messi looked excellent in the game against Nantes. And I think what Galtier has focused on, and that ties in quite nicely with Messi playing well and with Neymar playing well, is he's looking to chip away at the cliques that have developed over time within the PSG dressing room. I think those cliques have really undermined the efforts of most coaches in recent times before Galtier, anyway, they've really undermined what those coaches were trying to do. So I think Galtier is quite right to go in there and chip away at those cliques and try to try to harmonise the dressing room because that team, and you're quite right, Patrick, to mention the nature of the signings, does seem to be more focused on, rather than the glitz and the glamour, uh, if, if you like, of signing Sergio Ramos or even to an extent Messi, like of signing Nordi Mugielli, Hugo Ekitike. I think those signings are really quite sensible. I think there's a desire on the part of Galtier and PSG more widely to shift on a lot of players. You alluded to that as well, Patrick. Until they can fully rid the club of those players, those players who, like Yuli and Drax, are, really aren't featuring in the manager's plans, but just love Paris and they're picking up a lot of money on a weekly basis. So they're quite understandably reticent to move on um, until they can manage to to rid themselves of, of those players. That sounds quite a harsh way to put it, but I think it's the only way to put it. Until they can manage that, I don't think PSG can fully move on from the pre-Galtier era 
but the appointment of Galtier, the appointment of Campos, for me, represent a shift in the right direction. Whether or not that shift is more permanent, is more long-term, or whether it's something quite short-lived remains to be seen. I think come the end of the season, once we know quite how well PSG have done domestically, they have to win the league, quite simply. There's there's no other option there for Galtier and Campos. They have to win the league. Um, but more importantly, we'll see how they've fared in the Champions League, I think that will give us a real indication as to whether or not the owners will be happy to continue with this new approach. One of the players you mentioned, Patrick Vitinha, um, is, yeah, I think quite emblematic of this new approach to recruitment, this new approach to building a squad at the Parc de France. And Michael, as a Wolves fan, you'll be well familiar with Vitinha. You'll perhaps think of him as the one that, that got away in the words of Katy Perry. So how how do you think Vitinha will settle in in the French capital? I'm really excited to see his progress. He certainly does categorise, he is the one that got away. He was with us in the 2021 season and he had a really strange season, really. I think ultimately Wolves were in a transition period. Uh, Barlow mentioned Nino Spirito Santo before. It was his final season at the club and players did seem to suffer as a result of that and I think Vitinho was arguably one of the ones who well in the end indirectly benefited from it in maybe the case that he didn't sign on at Wolves and that he was able to blossom on his return to Porto which led to this move you know Wolves had a buyout option of about half of what PSG paid I think around 35 million but he's gone from this player who we could see a couple of years ago as a more attacking player and more attacking midfielder and he was starring for the Portugal under-21s, but struggling in the Premier League with lack of game time, but did shine on occasion, scored a wonderful goal versus Chorley. But just kind of coming back, I think the initial impression I kind of got is that this is a guy who's maybe been signed to play at a PSG level as maybe the heir apparent to Verratti. And, you know, that's a huge, that's huge expectations. But of course, Verratti arrived in even sort of as an even lesser known name from when he arrived from Pescara. So, you know, there, there is, I, I do think there's a lot of pos, a, a lot of potential with Vitinha. I think he's one of those players who just sort of glides across the pitch. He will make the effortless transitions from um, midfield to attack. And I, I do think the players who will be around, you know, he is young and if he is confident, um, and he can carry on that impressive Porto formula. It'll be such a joy to play with for you know that the front three that PSG possess. Absolutely. Just before we do move on to discuss German football, I want to continue that theme of players who got away and look at it more from the PSG lens. Uh, we've spoken previously about the sheer volume of former PSG Academy players who were let go by PSG quite prematurely and have thrived at other clubs. That wheel team that won the league and title not so long ago was of course made up of two or three players at least who who had uh, come through the youth academy at PSG. I'm thinking of Bubakari Samari, I'm thinking of Mike Mignon, I'm thinking of Jonathan Iconi. Uh, elsewhere, You've got Christopher Nkunku, who is one of the most exciting attackers in Europe, is thriving at RB Leipzig. Just generally, the amount of players who have been let go by PSG at a young age, Kings of Coman as well, uh, Ferran Mondi. There's so many players there who 
could really have given this PSG side an identity. I think we, we did speak about that before as well. PSG's lack of an identity. Uh, these players were and still are the ones that, that got away. And there's chat of Arno Calimuendo, who of course has done so well at Lons over the past couple of seasons, um, being linked with a move away. And that suggests to me that they're not really learning their lessons. You are bringing in Hugo Ekitike, who is highly rated, but very young. And, and compared to Arno Calimuendo, he's probably further along in his development. But I do just wonder, are PSG learning learning their lessons? If they do let Calimuendo go, are they really learning their lessons? Are Campos and Gauti just repeating the mistakes of their predecessors? Are we going to see that pattern of players released too prematurely? continue. It's an interesting one and, and one that I think we should probably monitor um, certainly as we look to see PSG develop some sort of identity under the guidance of Campos and Galtier. Paul, you wanted to add something quickly before we wrapped up this section of the podcast. Yeah, just nipping quickly and sort of in terms of that identity shift as always at big clubs a lot of this is about power struggle and like how much of Luis Campos getting his way how much of that sort of factors into things. I think before Christophe Galtier was appointed and Galtier was Campos's choice, there was a lot of rumours about PSG going after Zinedine Zidane, which would have totally sort of clashed with Galtier, uh, with Luis Campos and what he has seen for the team. Um, so I think it'll be interesting from that point of view. And will Galtier and Campos have the power to make big decisions and upset a few people? I think that's always sort of a major issue at big clubs, especially when you've got such a, a bounty of resources. And uh, and uh, just quickly on uh, on Leo Messi, I think he'll be a lot better this season. And mm-hmm. once again, PSG's big issue in the Champions League will be can they balance that sort of that rich attack with the defence and make sure that those three up top are doing enough running um, mm-hmm. because he looks fully fit again, whereas he didn't at all last season. He looked majestic against Nantes on the weekend. So I am really looking forward to seeing him play the way we know he can play in Ligue 1 this season. Okay, we're going to draw our analysis of French football and specifically PSG to a close there. We're going to turn our attention now to Bayern Munich. They, of course, lost Robert Lewandowski over the summer. So we're going to look at how or rather what we can expect from them tactically and more generally, this season. We'll be right back. Now, for the German section of this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Byron Hutchison. Byron is a recruitment analyst at Norwegian club Viking, and he is the social media lead at the Bundesliga so he knows a thing or two about football and German football at that Bayern it's great to have you on we're going to speak a little bit about Bayern Munich who of course will be without the services of Polish talisman Robert Lewandowski following his summer move to Barcelona over eight trophy filled years in Bavaria the 33 year old netted an eye-watering 344 goals in 375 games when we take those goals and Lewandowski's central role in Bayern's style of play into account, it perhaps goes without saying that his departure will be keenly felt by the 32 times champions of Germany. So, tactically, 
and more generally speaking, what can we expect from Bayern Munich in the post-Lewandowski era, Byron? Yeah, good question. Hi, mate. Thank you for the, the very kind intro. Um, and yeah, I think for Byron, you mentioned all the success and the, the scale of the change really with Lewandowski leaving and the goals and the records he's broken and uh, all of that sort of stuff. And I think politically, it was important for them to replace his profile as a, as a sort of star um, culturally um, with another quote-unquote star more so than it was to replace him tactically um, or at least from a tactical perspective. I think with Manny, they've achieved that. It's a, a big win for the club and how they want to present themselves to the world, attracting a, a big player from the Premier League still at his peak, probably coming to the, the other side of it, but the way players are sort of maintaining their fitness these days, I don't want to put anything on him. He's only 29, so um, still has some years ahead of him. And importantly as well, he was working under Klopp at Liverpool, um, and Klopp is obviously still held in huge esteem everywhere, but in Germany, he's on every billboard, every advert. You see his face all the time. He's still a huge icon here. So for Bayern to get someone like that, and also I shouldn't forget Manny being a huge star in Africa as well, which I think gets overlooked sometimes or forgotten about, but continentally, he's he's very significant. Obviously just won the African Player of the Year, uh, I think last week as well. So I, I think that from a, a cultural perspective and for the club to keep themselves at the, the not just at the peak of the Bundesliga, because I think that's well established, but on that kind of global stage where they can, show their might a little bit and attract some of the biggest players. Um, I think that for them was very, very important. Like I said, tactically, I don't think replacing Lewandowski directly was of vital importance for Bayern or especially Nagelsmann. Um, and not to be, not to sound like a, a know-it-all, but I think a lot of people were quite quick to, to jump to the kind of conclusion that they would replace him. And you saw things flying around Twitter and newspapers like Build and things like that, where they were, linking Bayern with various number nine types, traditional number nine types, I would I would maybe call them like Haller or Sheck or Kalajic, um, and then even Harry Kane laterally, and, and that name still comes up in Germany now and again um, as a target for Bayern Munich. And to me, none of those really ever made sense from a tactical perspective. I think when you look at Nagelsmann's profile and the way he likes to play football, the way they played last season was kind of not very Nagelsmann-esque with that rigid kind of structure that they have with a, a very static number nine, not that Lewandowski's hugely static in any way, but I think you know what I mean in terms of he's a number nine, he fills that position and players operate around him. Um, and I think this season as well, having had a successful year last year, relatively speaking, Nagelsmann will probably want to put a stamp on the team um, and Lewandowski's departure is as big an opportunity to switch the dynamic and, and change the way they play and, and move towards that more interchangeable front three which I think is what he would ideally like and if you look at the players and the profile of players they have now I think Manny will likely still play centrally Gnabry's done that job for Germany before to good effect Sani can float across the front line um, for the most part Musiala is very flexible as well he's an attacking sort of eight can play maybe a 10 can play on the wings definitely probably the most rigid of their players in the final third is Kingsley Coleman and that he's very much a winger but even then can play on either side and either any of those players I just mentioned can can move across the front line and interchange with, with each other and I think if you look especially at the Super Cup Byron obviously won 5-3 it was maybe a good indicator of how they plan to set up the season they started with with Manny at the top as number nine in a 4-2-3-1 but if you look at the second goal I think that's a, a kind of perfect example of how Nagelsmann envisions his team attacking 
Muller finding a pocket of space, playing a quick back pass, creating space for Gnabry to run in behind, getting the ball wide, and then a, a quick, easy cutback for Manny to tap home. And that sort of play, that dynamic, that interchange of players and the ability to read each other and their movement, I think, um, will be vital this season, much more so than, than in previous years, where, like I said, invariably, Lewandowski's filling the void centrally and the rotations happen around him rather than with him, if that makes sense. So he's always central. And I, I think now that we have Manny, there's going to be a lot more dynamic, fluid movements in their attack. And I think it'll be really exciting to watch as well, assuming everything clicks. Yeah, Byron, it's, it's fascinating to hear, I suppose, from to an extent, the marketing perspective there of signing Sadio Mane, the kind of the statement aspect of it and his impact, his sway globally, not just in Europe. I think that's that's a really important aspect for you to flag. And then tactically as well, I think we did get an insight over the course of, of that game in the Super Cup against Leipzig, which was a highly entertaining game. I do have to admit, I had a couple of beers by the time of the game. So, so I wasn't able to quite give it my full attention. I wasn't quite able to take from it. 100% of, of what was going on but I think what we saw was that Bayern are going to be really fun to watch again this season. Now Byron, you obviously in your role as the social media lead at the Bundesliga were at the Allianz Arena fairly recently for one of the Bundesliga's media days. What can you tell us about the general mood, the general atmosphere in Munich, in the Allianz Arena that day as they look ahead to the new season? Yeah, I think uh, it's good. Uh, as you mentioned, the media days, I get to travel around to several clubs. So um, I think I went to seven or eight this year. I can't quite remember off the top of my head. And there's always a different mood at each club. And you, you go to some and they've just played a friendly the day before. Or I think at Freiburg, they had done a two-hour training session and then a 10K run to finish the session before coming to us. So you get different moods. Everyone at Freiburg was uh, lovely, by the way. So I don't know how they get through it. But um you get different moods at Bayern. It's always very professional. And I, I mentioned you, to you before we, we came on that Lewandowski was there too. So there was a bit of, of tension. It was ended up being his last day. But the mood among the players generally was was pretty good. Everyone was pretty jovial, I think. It depends on the groups you get together, but Chupa Moting and Serge Gnabry had a, a great time. Everyone seemed excited for the season, I think invigorated by the signing of Sadio Mane. Uh, it's obviously a change for a lot of them. And when you look at the sort of stalwarts of the squad of which Lewandowski was one, but Muller, Kimmich now, uh, Neuer, those sorts of guys, you could see that it was maybe something, something's changed and it might be a bit refreshing for them. It's a, it's a new challenge almost um, to, to work with a new player and work in a different way. So yeah, I think overall positive, good. They, they seemed up for, up for the season and they all looked in pretty good shape as well, but that's a given. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit, Byron, because we didn't discuss this before coming on air, but for a lot of people looking from the outside at the Bundesliga, they just see it as Bayern winning every season, which recently has been the case. But for me, and maybe for you as well, the more interesting aspect of the Bundesliga is when you look beyond Bayern Munich and you look at some of the teams, and it is quite unpredictable in that regard. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Outside of Bayern, are there a team or is there a team this season that you think are going to be really fun to watch that are going to be a team that if you have some free time, you should really be dedicating some time to watching? Sure. I think in, in maybe not last year, but the year 
uh, a couple of years ago, it would have been Stuttgart. I think when they first came up, they were they were mm-hmm. really interesting. The things they were doing, but they, they've fallen away a bit. Um, and I think this year's team, it's a boring answer because it's the same team I would have pitched last year. But it is Freiburg? I think you know they had an outstanding season last year, and I think they've made some. Obviously, they lost Nico Schlotterbeck to Beval Bay, but they've brought in a pretty decent replacement in Matthias Ginter. I think he's not going to replace him like for like, but. He's a solid Bundesliga defender who we know can operate at a good level, you know, a top five level. And then some of their other acquisitions, I think, have been interesting too. I look at Litz Doan, who, who's been in the Bundesliga before, obviously, and, and performed well, went back to PSV and, and didn't quite kick on, but they've brought him in permanently now. And I think he's someone that will will really make a difference for them. And he already has in sort of pre-season. He's really interesting dynamic attacker, like, on the left wing can play on the right wing too. I think him combination with Grifo on the on the opposite flank. They've got a really and and Wu Yong as well, who I, I like a lot. They they've got a really interesting, fairly young, not so much Grifo. Doan now is maybe twenty four, but attacking line that I think will cause a lot of a lot of teams pro- problems. And also defensively, they're they're pretty solid. They've they've kept hold of of Gunter and as I said, replaced Schlotterbeck with Ginter. So. And Christian Strike is always value as well. So I think there'll be a hard working side. They've got the players and the tools there to to really, I wouldn't say shock, because last year they shocked everyone, mm-hmm. but to have a big impact. And then obviously they have a European campaign to look forward to too. So uh, Freiburg would be the team as boring as it is because they were the team last year. But Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the Bundesliga is packed with, with interesting case studies like Freiburg. I think it's probably why it's one of my favourite leagues in Europe, along with League and and yes, yeah, it's, it's it's fascinating really, Byron, to to hear that insight from yourself. You've obviously had that inside knowledge. You've been able to speak to the players, to to work with the players. So it really is appreciated that you have taken the time to come on to the podcast. I'll wish you the best of success with Viking. They're obviously in the process of trying to qualify for Europe. So I wish you well in that regard, and I'll wish Thank you, you well. For the Bundesliga season, hopefully another highly entertaining and easily marketable Bundesliga <laughs> season. Okay, okay, we are going to wrap up our analysis of German football. There, it was really interesting hearing from Byron. We're going to turn our attention now to Italy. Michael Jones is going to tell us all about Juventus. We'll be right back. Over the last three seasons, Juventus have added just a solitary Coppa Italia to their otherwise brimming trophy cabinet. That underwhelming period has seen the old lady cede their European powerhouse status with the 36 times champions of Italy in a real state of decline. When we think back to Massimiliano Allegri's first tenure at the club, Juve were almost untouchable. By contrast, they've looked really quite fallible during Allegri's second spell in charge. That said, the signings of big names on free transfers, notably Angel Di Maria and the returning Paul Pogba, and the nature of those signings will no doubt evoke memories of an era not too long gone at the Allianz Arena. So, with that apparent approach to recruitment in mind, can the old lady look back to move forward, Michael? I mean, initially, it looks like they possibly can. I mean, this marquee return of Paul Pogba, who, 
let's not forget, I mean, everybody's recent memory is Pogba and that for in, in his recent years at Manchester United, but he was sensational in that first spell at Juventus. Um, bearing in mind, he'd only made three senior appearances before he arrived in Turin and over four seasons, by the end of it, he was contributing more than 30, uh, 20 goals uh, in goals and assists or goal contributions. And he thrived not under not just under Allegri, but also under Antonio Conte. And now we've seen him come back on a free, roughly on much bigger wages, I guess. I think it's roughly about 15 million euros a year. And yeah, I guess there is a bit of a similarity to Juventus's transfer policy. I know that they were kind of perceived as free transfer merchants sort of over the past decade. And if you cast your minds back, you can think so. Okay, you may have your Fernando Llorentes. He wasn't a bad signing by any means, but there was higher profile ones as well. There was Danny Alves, Henry Chan, uh, Kingsley Coman, Adrian Rabio, all to varying degrees of success, but were all sort of seen as big coups when they arrived. And of course, Pogba, like you said, has arrived with Di Maria. And I sort of think that I, I, I've always thought that Di Maria is sort of one of the most underrated elite players of the last decade. And you know, sort of seeing how they get on is going to be a fascinating conversation and a fascinating watch over the course of the season. But I think Pogba, when he's arriving, has been seen as the player who can bring the good times back. I think he's sort of been seen as that symbol as uh, bringing the Juventus back to what they were maybe five or six or six or seven years ago. And However, despite arriving on a four-year contract, he's recently injured his meniscus, and that has suddenly shone light on the Bianconeri's sort of squad debt following their transfer activity. And with Pogba being out, what was initially meant to be two months, but that could now see him even miss the World Cup, it could, you know, now we've seen with a number of departures at Juventus, we've seen the likes of Matthias Delict, who's gone to Bayern Munich, uh, Giorgio Chiellini, who looked like initially he was going to stay for another season until Italy didn't qualify for the World Cup and then made quite a quick decision to leave for Los Angeles. And really their only other arrival at the back has been Bremer, which I think, as good as Bremer was, maybe the standout centre-back in Italy last season, he's yet to be seriously tested in a back two. And he did really shine for Torino in a back three. So seeing, I do think sometimes going from a back three to a back two or back four, depending how you see it, is always a bit of a challenge for players, sort of especially when they're stepping up a level at the competition that they're playing at. So it's going to be really, yeah, I, I'm really intrigued to see how they get on. But there's still massive question marks over this Juventus team. I think that, OK, these signings are hugely successful when we look at Pogba and Di Maria, but do they resemble the old free transfer we said? We said some of those have maybe seen better days, not maybe the best years in terms of where they physically should be at, but maybe saw some of their better days. And you could say, whilst Di Maria and Pogba have been hugely successful in their careers, World Cup, Copa America winners, uh, Champions League winner in Di Maria's case, there is a case also to say that the last few years in clubs have been spent in as maybe more senior roles in the dressing room when they've been part of teams that have under underwhelmed in terms of what they've achieved at club level if you look at PSG and Manchester United in their own respects but I think there's a few issues that the, the one big one which I am looking forward to seeing how they can maybe fix Juventus going forwards is creativity Juventus were the high, 11th highest scorers in the league last season 
uh, which perfectly align with their, where they were in the XG table as well. And okay, they had their Federico Chiesa injury. Him coming back this season will be a big boost. But, you know, Vlahovic was criticised for not having enough of an impact. But you look at where he got the creativity from. And, you know, you'd think with Chiesa, Pogba and Di Maria all supplying, he could be a lot more prolific this time around. But there's still a lot of issues sort of um, in this team. And whether it is creativity as well on the pitch, I think fullbacks is a massive issue. And, you know, they were the, one of the lowest for pressing in all parts of the pitch, especially the final third, especially for a team in the top half of the table. And whether that means they can sort of, with a slightly ageing squad still, whether they can translate this into better domestic and European success. And we saw the way that in terms of they just couldn't press Villarreal successfully in the Champions League this season. It's still really yet to be seen. And I would just kind of sort of finish off and saying there are, there are some positives in terms of young players. But if you look and, you know, in terms of young players, they've got Kyle George from, I think it was from Santos, Moise Akin from PSG. And an interesting one called Fagioli, who was a part of the Cremonetsi team who got promoted last season. He'll be in Serie A this season, literally translate into Bean. And I think he'll, they'll hope, I think they'll hope he has the sort of similar energy of one in terms of Juventus's midfield, um, if he's able to add to it in Pogba's absence. But there's still depth issues all over the pitch. And unfortunately, which is a bit of a cop-out answer at this stage, but we may not get a better idea until a month's time. Because as it currently stands, it looks like they could potentially just be going backwards in terms of where they are in comparison to their European and more importantly at the moment, their domestic rivals. But there's a few weeks to go in the transfer market and I guess that's where they'd really look to change that. Patrick, I'm kind of intrigued to hear what you think about Juventus going into the new season and where you think they maybe do need to strengthen if they do. Yeah, I would corroborate almost everything you've said. I think you've summarised it really well. I do think a point that's really important to hit home is the transition from a three at the back going to two at back is a lot more difficult than vice versa. You'll see it in almost every country, every system. The player has the added protection of playing with two other centre-backs. It's just a lot easier. They're given far more free roam defensively. And when you do scale back into a four or a two, however you want to say it, um, there, there is problems uh, and teething problems most certainly at the beginning. Although I, I really do like Bremer. I saw him in limited time. And I do think he's a sensible pickup for Juventus, much like Dennis Sakaria. I also am a big fan of him. I do think the, the majority of the headlines, as you mentioned, will be the return of Pogba or Pogba or whatever sort of uh, funny, uh, quirky sort of tweet thing he's made. Uh, and Di Maria as well. I, I do think there is some argument to be made that the sort of front leverage, front loading of risk in sort of the financial bit and signing sort of these they're still in their prime, I think it's fair to say, but definitely towards the end of their prime. Players kind of make sense because as it has been over the past few years, Serie A is probably the most open of the top five leagues. That's not really that difficult given the sort of monopoly and duopoly we see in most of the leagues, if not all, but Serie A. So there is some thought that the idea of short-term gains will, will pay off because there's the sort of easy, or not easy carrot, but it, it, they're certainly not too difficult to beat out um, uh, other teams in Serie A, although Roma's businesses look quite good. AC Milan certainly haven't weakened and they'll be going in again, looking to try and regain that. And Inter will try and sort of get Scudetto back after losing it to their city rivals. But for me, I think there's always going to be an inherent bias that as long as Agnelli is on the UBA board, I want them to sort of fail because he's, to me, seen as the sort of main guy with, with the Super League and I'm incredibly apathetic to that. But I, I do think the events have done well. They've moved forward 
although I'm not sure if that's the best in the sense of their financial health, although they're still yet to replace Dybala. I do think there's been some murmurings. I'm not sure if that was more so of genuine rumor or people just saying this would be a good deal, but Memphis Depay to Juve for around 20 million euros, he could replace sort of the positional versatility and the creativity Dybala left. But I still do think we're one or two pieces away from seeing a Juventus that can win Scudetto. And I think we're a few years away from seeing a Juventus who can challenge in the Champions League. They really need to hit it out of the park for the next few seasons with the development of in-house young talent and the sort of recruitment of both uh, prime players and pre-prime. I think you mentioned Kyle George from Santos, who looks like a really good talent, but that's what he is just now, just a talent at this point. But I, I do think we're still maybe two years away from being two years away from a Juventus being a, a Champions League contender for real. Yeah, just obviously you speak about that younger talent, Patrick and Michael, and that's it, players at one end of their careers. We also mentioned Angel Di Maria and Michael, you were asking me before we came on air what we will perhaps see from Angel Di Maria, what we can perhaps expect from Angel Di Maria in Turin. And I was just reminding myself, it has been seven years since Di Maria moved from Manchester to PSG, which which was, yeah, quite, quite baffling. It does just seem like yesterday that Di Maria scored that gorgeous dink against Leicester at the King Power in that crazy game. I think Jamie Vardy ran riots, uh, just, yeah, totally bamboozled the Manchester United defence that day. So to think that it's been seven years since Di Maria moved from Manchester to Paris is, yeah, rather baffling. And when we look at his numbers, I think it's, it's quite easy to forget the impact that Di Maria had at PSG. He registered 93 goals and 119 assists in... 294 games for PSG in all competitions. When we think of Di Maria at PSG, I think what we think of is a player who is often asked to be the enabler, if you like, for all the other attacking players, the player who has almost had to sacrifice his his desire to, to attack more often. That PSG team was synonymous with an imbalanced approach with players who would not be too fussed about tracking back and Di Maria was quite often the player who would be praised for his work rate and for his application which would then allow the the lazier players shall we say to thrive and to not track back I think it would be interesting at Juventus if we see Di Maria liberated to a certain extent I think he he is obviously getting on now He's, he's 34 I'm not quite sure how many minutes he'll play this season. But I think if we could maybe see Di Maria in a more liberated role, we, we could see him thrive again because he's a beautiful football player. We've seen him score some of the most beautiful goals uh, in world football, both for Argentina, for Manchester United, for PSG. He is a really quite wonderful football player with the ball at his feet. He's excellent. His control, his first touch, his finishing, his awareness, they're all joys to behold. And I think... Yeah, perhaps in, in glimpses, if not over the course of the full season, we can see Di Maria produce some some moments of magic. And I'm not quite sure what Juventus as a club are expecting from him. I'm not quite sure what Juventus fans are expecting from him. But if they're looking for moments of magic like that, if they're looking for a player who will work hard, then, then Di Maria will produce. I'm just not quite sure how regularly and how often he'll be able to play and produce those moments of magic. Okay, that was a really interesting look at Juventus. They're obviously uh, in a state of flux, perhaps, we could say, at this point in time. The recruitment 
hasn't given too much away as to how they'll fare this season. It's not revealing too much about a general approach to recruitment, but we've, we've tried our best there to sort of dissect UV's chances going into the new season. Thank you to Michael Jones for all your contributions over this episode. It's been great speaking to you again, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me back on and thanks for getting us all together again for another season. I can't wait. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. Uh, we'll, of course, be releasing episodes every fortnight, every second Friday, first thing in the morning in your podcast feeds. You'll be able to listen to our dulcet tones. Thank you also to Patrick Caskey for coming on. Patrick, it was so beneficial, so interesting to hear your insights on several really quite interesting topics across Europe. So thank you for giving up your time and for your thorough research, Patrick. No, I appreciate you guys having me on. Hopefully the first of many and people can sort of get used to my sort of barely coherent rumblings on things pan-European football. Absolutely, Patrick. And if our listeners have enjoyed listening to Patrick, they can find you on Twitter. Do I just share your Twitter handle just now, Patrick? Yeah, it's at Patrick Caskey. It's mainly Rangers stuff, so I would say anyone who is sort of opposed to that, uh, do not follow me. But I do think there it's spread broadly good, uh, always good discussions on my page, I think, as well. Uh, so yeah, I would invite you to come and look and read some of the stuff. And obviously, give feedback where possible, always looking to improve. Absolutely, Patrick. It was so good having you on. Thanks also to Rudy Barlow. Rudy had to leave. He's, of course, a busy man, a man increasingly in demand, but it was great listening to Barlow once again. He'll be with us for this season. Uh, we've managed to retain his services despite interest from elsewhere. Thanks must also go to the excellent Byron Hutchison, who, of course, provided us with excellent insight into what we can expect from Bayern Munich as they enter their post-Robert Lewandowski era. Thanks also to you, the listener. If you don't already, please do subscribe to the podcast. Please do leave us a rating. If you're new to the podcast, it's great to have you on board. If you're a returning listener, thanks for all your loyalty. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Stay well, stay safe. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.